Greetings and welcome to another episode of The Bog House. Hello, hello. What what have you been up to this week? I had an amazing week. I think the highlight of my amazing week was that I was invited to attend an event at the Museum of the American Revolution, my favorite museum in Philadelphia tied with the Muda Museum. <laughs> <laughs> We have to say that because we have friends now at both, but actually they are our favorite museums. Um, the event itself was a talk given by Dr. Catherine Gerbner called Slavery in the Quaker World, which is so very relevant to episode 10 of a podcast. I literally was sitting in the audience the entire time wanting to leap up out of my chair and scream, I know! And let me tell you something about Daniel Williams, like anyone in the room would have cared. Um, by the way, uh, Dr. Grabner has just published a book called Christian Slavery through the University of Pennsylvania Press, which I bought a copy of and is an incredibly important and amazingly eye-opening read. I think that everybody needs to talk about it. There was some really amazing concepts in her talk about how Protestant supremacy morphed into white supremacy or evolved into white supremacy, which I just think is so important for people to understand as we discuss and dissect and hopefully dismantle racism in modern day America. But before the talk, I was invited to a reception where I got to meet a bunch of the people who run the museum. And I'm still giggling over the fact that they're all really big fans of the podcast and they <laughs> they knew all of our story and they were really excited about what we were doing so oh my god huge shout out to scott stevenson and hannah betcher and uh tyler putnam and of course mark toto who was on the abc spot with us but who we never actually met in person right and who i still haven't met and it sucked because you couldn't be there <laughs> Yeah, it was a big week for my company. We had our annual summit where I work for this e-commerce platform, Work Area, and uh, if you're on Magento, you should switch to Work Area um, <laughs> because we're poised for some big things this year. And so part of that was this two-day summit where I uh, was doing all the things I normally do. Uh, as but, a sales engineer, as a solutions engineer. Yeah, well, uh, you know, Except. just <laughs> mingling with people and, and catching up with folks that I've had to talk to, but also kind of running sound for the venue. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Matt, now that you're a podcaster. <laughs> it's funny because, I don't know, they, they had a guy there who uh, just didn't really know what he was doing. And I was trying so hard to just stay in my lane. Like, I'm sitting next to him, and I'm watching him thinking, like, do you know anything about gain staging? <laughs> um, and he kept disappearing, too, at important points. So, eventually, I just kind of took over the soundboard and uh, fixed the problem, in addition to uh, all the other stuff that was going on. Yeah, it just meant that you had more than one job. Oh, I was so, week. so... You were fried. Beat. I was beat. I'm still hanging in there. <laughs> um, but... but and on top of all of that, I could have been chilling at the Museum of the American Revolution. With our with new some... biggest fans <laughs> and amazing friends who I am so, like, I'm, I'm just, like, kind of starstruck because they run this incredible museum. And then I walked in the room and they recognized me and I was like, what the fuck? It's a wonderful <laughs> mutual admiration society. We Yay! Have the best. Um, so this week we have a different 
format. Once again, we keep switching topics and formats every couple of weeks. That Bowie influence. Yeah, that's right. We're just evolving like a proper artist. (laughs) Um, This week, we did our first interview for the show, and it's an awesome one. It's with a real archaeologist a real professional archaeologist none of this bullshit amateur i just googled how to do archaeology on the internet but someone who actually has training and years and years of expertise and her name is debbie miller we met her a couple of years ago as we'll relate in the interview but she is an archaeologist who works primarily for a company called aecom which is a massive corporation. They're like an $18 billion company. Anytime I see construction work being done around highways, just major infrastructure, you see the AECOM helmets, the hard hats, and uh, the yellow vests. Right. Yeah, they're kind of everywhere, at least in America. And here in Philadelphia, specifically, AECOM does a lot of the archaeology that happens around town, specifically to do with I-95, but also to do with some of the sites around the national park that is Independence Mall. So Debbie has also worked with and for the National Park Service. Debbie's also the resident archaeologist for a historical property here in Philadelphia called Stenton. Mm -hmm. Her husband, Dennis Pickerel, is the executive director. Um, He was also at the Museum of the American Revolution event that I was at this week because the world of historical preservation and learning is apparently very small in Philadelphia. Especially here in Philadelphia. I run into Debbie when I'm going out to lunch, like, all the time. Right. It's right in the same neighborhood. Right, exactly. Uh, So we had the absolute pleasure of going over to their house, their beautiful house, which is stuffed full of incredible artifacts, actually, on every surface that they own. Um, And uh, hanging out with her and having a big old conversation that you're about to hear. And also seeing briefly Dennis and their freaking adorable daughter, Virginia, who is five. And also their amazing chonky cats, (laughs) who are called... Butter and biscuit. Oh my gosh! This <laughs> one of which was it? Was it uh, biscuit? Who was very butter. talkative? It was butter. Butter immediately greeted us upon entering the house, very, very loudly. Yeah, basically sat on the back of the couch and screamed at us <laughs> for about twenty seconds. He got that off house. his chest. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> went about his business. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. We go in a lot of different directions, and uh, I think it's a fascinating conversation, and I'm hoping that if you've made it this far in the podcast, you also find this stuff interesting. Take a seat. You're in the bog house. Where did you grow up? I grew up on the Virginia-Tennessee border in a little town called Abingdon, right in the heart of Appalachia. Yes. So um, it's about 500 miles from Philadelphia. Wow. Straight down 81. And 
How the heck did you get into archaeology growing up in Abingdon, Virginia? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. And I don't, I don't really know the answer to it. Um, I always liked history. I always liked American history. And I think with all kids, it starts with, you know, dinosaurs and then, yeah. you know, moves its way up. But I, I remember when I was a kid, we used to go and visit family in Port Tobacco, Maryland, which there's actually an active archaeological site in the little village of Port Tobacco, which hmm. was a very important 18th century port. Hmm. Where um, they had tobacco. <laughs> that's where the tobacco went out. Oh, okay, uh, for sure. Um, so, <laughs> so, and my aunt, who I would stay with, would take me and my three cousins, who hated every minute of it, she would take us to historic sites because she knew I liked history, and I didn't get a lot of it back home. Um, and I think that probably really generated a lot of it. And then at some point, I, you know, I, I liked archaeology. Yeah. And then it just kind of went from there. And it's interesting that you say, like, your cousins really hated it. Because I, I always feel like there has to be something innate in some kids that they're just drawn to that stuff. Right. Yeah. You know, um, what I mean, do you it's think? It's funny because when I was a kid, like, that stuff bored me to tears. Like, oh, the Golden Plow Tavern again. Like, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. It took like it took a while for me to really appreciate that. It did eventually change for me, uh, but it, it sounds like you were bitten by the bug early on. Yeah, I was, and I again, I don't, I don't remember the sequence of events or yeah. what led to it, but I did. I just always, always, always liked history, and I can remember certain sites that I visited. I can remember going to Stratford Hall, which was the ancestral home of the Lees. And uh, just being blown away by the house and the furnishings. And, you know, you don't get into the complicated history of things when you're eight. Right. But, you know, I I remember just being very taken by those kind of environments. And I liked, you know, museums and objects, but also just the stories that come from those things. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, it, it ultimately led to me going to college. So and so when you graduated high school, what, what did you go to college for? I went to a small liberal arts college in Virginia for two years mm-hmm. um, where I just, you know, did general studies, but I took a lot of history courses. And then I transferred to Virginia Commonwealth University uh-huh. in Richmond, Virginia, where I ended up majoring in sociology and anthropology, oh. which is really the track that you most often have to go into in right. order to do archaeology. And I had done some archaeology I had done a dig or two um, with my first college. We did some work out around Williamsburg, Jamestown, and that was enough for me to know Mm -hmm. this is what I want to do, which led me to transfer. So when you were imagining your life in archaeology, what were the things that you were most interested in doing? Like, was it digs or were you really more interested in uncovering the stories? I think you're always interested initially in the digging. And I learned very quickly that being out in the Virginia summer was not for me. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, No, it's, in my opinion, there are people that love it. It was awful. And (laughs) we were sunburned. We were digging. It was all outdoors. Yeah, it's all outdoors. Um, You know, the lab work tends to take place in the off months when the weather isn't so good. So, yeah, we were, you know, we were in Chesterfield County, Virginia, in the middle of a backyard of a really cool 18th century house. But, you know, there was bugs the size of small dogs and there was a swamp relatively close by. And no, it wasn't fun. And there was poison ivy and 
there were snakes and I just, oh, that good. wasn't, that wasn't for me. Yeah, no, and, I could totally understand that. Um, ticks, you know, yeah. and I'm not like, I'm not an ooky person, but it right. was like, yeah, what can I, how can I do this without doing this? Right. And I did do, um, after my field school for college, um, I did a little exhibit on some of the artifacts that we found. And I really enjoyed doing that. And I think that was when I first realized that I really like the objects. Mm. Um, although I went back, you know, four or five years later and looked at the exhibit and it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was wrong. And I was like, who was the idiot that did this? And I was like, oh, it was me. And that's how um, you know you're growing. That's how you know yeah, you're growing. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so. yeah, that's like, I feel like across pretty much any discipline, right? With computer programming or for me, it's music. I look at my old stuff and I'm like, oh, this is bullshit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's a bless your heart moment. Yeah. I, I'd be worried if I look back at something that I had done five years ago and I'm like, that's pretty good. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> I went back and read my master's thesis and I just like calmly closed it and just set it to the side. I was like, yeah. So how did you end up in Philly? So the way we ended up in Philly, um, we actually moved to Pennsylvania for me to go to graduate school. And I applied for a job with the National Park Service. And it's kind of a funny story because I applied at the end of July. And um, after Thanksgiving, I got a call asking if I would want to do an interview. Right. Oh. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize this was still a thing. Right. So, um, yeah, it happened very quickly. And I was interviewing. <laughs> That's funny, too. I was working for the state of Pennsylvania doing archaeology when I had my interview. And I actually did my interview for the National Park Service from a work truck um, <laughs> in a cornfield in Millersville, Pennsylvania, uh. where oh. we were basically doing... Um, it was a Native American village that was going to be developed and we were doing burial removal. So huh. I had had been working on burials all summer. All wow. Fall, and I, yeah, so I took a break from that to go talk to the park service in the truck. <laughs> and the park service job was specifically for the dig in Philadelphia that was happening, about to happen, or was it? It was specifically for the National Constitution Center project, okay. which... Um, Tell everyone about that because people have no idea. <laughs> yes, and I will call it the NCC. So when I fall into that, you know what I'm talking about. But um, prior to the construction of the National Constitution Center, there was a very large dig that was done there basically where the footprint of the building is. And it's mm -hmm. one of the largest ex urban excavations of the National Park Service to date. That was done between 2000 and roughly 2003, although the bulk of it was between 2000 and 2001. And the material that had been excavated there, you know, money, space, all kinds of things had prevented it from immediately being worked on. And so in 2007, when I started with the Park Service in January, Myself and my colleague at the time, Willie Hoffman, were brought in to run the lab with Jed Levin, who is the research director for the project. And um, yeah, so we had a million artifacts that were staring us in the face. Like from, literally a million. It's <laughs> give, give or take. It, um, I think the raw counts are like 997,000 or something crap. like that. But who, who's counting? Right. So, so the original dig was... Some privies, right, but also just stuff. So um, so you have to think of it in terms of a city block. Mm -hmm. And that's the initial approach because the footprint of the National Constitution Center 
is literally most of the city block. Between- oh, yeah, I should explain, I guess, to out-of-town people. The National Constitution Center is a great big complex that's across the road from Independence Hall. Where Well, it's three blocks up from Independence Three blocks Hall. up. <laughs> you can yeah. see Independence Hall. It does cross Hall the road, but there's like- a lot of distance between right. the two of them. Right. <laughs> it's between Arch and Race and 5th and 6th. So across from the Mint. Uh, gotcha. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Across from the Mint, and yeah, and then you can sort of look down the mall and see the Liberty Bell and Independence mm-hmm. Hall as you're looking down. So mm-hmm. it's kind of this complex that right now it's um, what would you call it a uh, a learning center and and, it's and a museum. museum. It's a museum. Yeah, there's always tons of school groups coming in and out of there, and there are lots of presentations mm-hmm. about American history. So it was built. Uh, in the early 2000s, I guess. Early 2000s. There was um, the Independence Mall, which is the three blocks that extends from Independence Hall, where the Liberty Bell Center is, then the Visitor Center, and then the National Constitution Center. That was all redeveloped starting in the late 1990s. And they did excavations, actually, for the Liberty Bell Center and then where the Visitor Center is. And then at the end of that was the National Constitution Center. And I think it's important, too, to point out that that's all a contrived environment. Mm. Um, it's it's literally there to kind of cleanse the air of what was the industrialized center of yeah. the city. Right, um, I was going to say, when, so like what was there before? What kind of thing? So there were three city blocks mm-hmm. on each one of those blocks up until the 1950s when each of them was demolished mm-hmm. to create the mall. And it was really, a, it sanitized what was, you know, kind of a slummy area. Oh, yeah. And they had created the national park there. And so this was, you know, one of the first urban renewal projects right. to, to clean up an area. It's so and, hard for me to think about that area as being as shitty as it was like in the 70s. Because, But I, we've seen, you found oh, it's some incredible photos. looking at old photos before mm-hmm. the, the demolition. You, you tend to think, just because this is what we've been alive for, that there's this nice green park behind mm-hmm. Independence Mall. And it's been old that way for a long time. Old city is real expensive to live in. <laughs> uh, but it was just incredibly dense and yeah super dank (laughs) yeah it really was and the national constitution center block you know we look at it as from four sides you know it's got four street you know four streets around it but it actually had an entire network of internal streets Mm -hmm. that all of these blocks do so there's kind of like little blocks within the blocks itself and yeah there was um cherry street actually cut through the middle of it originally creating a north and a south half sure there was another street north of cherry that intersected the block as well and then two alleys that ran perpendicular to that so you had a lot going on within this block and it was incredibly dense and and the northern half especially they started developing that in the late 18th century so that's why we have so much material that came from the archaeology Mm -hmm. was because it wasn't just four streets and you know everybody had a big backyard it was really dense urban development that started very early on so like row homes for the most mostly row homes um yeah so they started as row homes and then over time certain parts of the block slowly transitioned into carriage factories or you know various other things things Um, that we don't make anymore (laughs) yeah things that we don't make anymore although there was always a residential presence of course there as well right i remember reading as well, that there was some really huge privies that were in that area. Yes. So in terms of the archaeology of it, we had, if if I remember correctly, I believe there were 137 shafts. We we what? call privy we call we call privy shafts. Um, there were 137 shaft features. Oh my god! On That's the block, lot. and I believe that we 
we fully mitigated, so we fully excavated about 25 of those. And this is all guesstimating, if uh-huh. I remember correctly. There were like some of the shafts are really huge some diameter. Of them are big. So does that look like a shared privy house? Is that what it is? Yeah. And so that's where historic research really comes into play, is trying to identify why does this look like this and that mm. looks like that. Mm-hmm. And, and the vast majority of them, yes, they're deep. You know, on average, they're about 20 to 25 feet deep. <laughs> But um, we had one in particular, Feature Ninety One, mm-hmm. which I'm I've put working off the glass, working on the glass for this one feature for literally ten years. Oh my gosh! Because there's so much of it. There's about fifty four thousand pieces of glass <gasps> from the privy. That's just the glass, and it's one of those things that you just walk by and you're like, oh, I've got to do that. Right. Yeah. On my list. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Ninety One was behind a row of five tenements 11 oh. by 15 tenements that were built around 1775 Jeez. initially they would have housed one family but then over time and especially as the block started to change and the city started to change they put another story on them and we believe that there was probably a family living on each floor of those sure. um, or maybe somebody had a boarding you know one of them had a boarding house there was a high rate of mobility we don't know who was living there yeah mm-hmm. but behind it there is this giant privy which was a communal privy and wow. it's eight feet in diameter and 22 feet deep and probably most of the privies that we work with too have probably been truncated mm-hmm. so we've probably mm-hmm. lost some footage of them just through later construction or when they demoed the block or whatever so it has an odd construction and i don't know how to describe it other than it's eight feet in diameter for i want to say about 12 feet Mm -hmm. and then it actually comes in and the shaft narrows Hmm. and you get down to the sand and plank floor Hmm. and in the corners where it goes out like and a becomes funnel. wider. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Um, there was older material in those corners. Sure. So that's what led us to believe that it was it was cleaned, cleaned. out probably sometime around 1790, So the cleaners missed the stuff in the corners. Yeah, um, or they just didn't bother with it. Sure. I think that I think if you're a night soilsman, you're yeah. gonna just go in there and be quick about it and I, go back yeah. to It's go done. Do you want to check my work? Yeah. I didn't think so. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> this is like the job that blows my mind that this is like a job. Just We're watching one of, of those like into... UK real estate shows where they're restoring old stuff and got to see them talk about sort of the other end of that where somebody's going through the garden and finding all the little bits of ceramics because uh because of the night, the night soil. We're able to sell that. Right. And then everybody surely gets E. coli. I mean, isn't that how how everyone dies from E. coli now is like they accidentally put poop in the lettuce? Yeah. A lot of people doing doing what I do, you always get the question, oh, well, would you want to live in the past? It's like, no way. Absolutely not. First of all, I would have like not made it past childbirth right because <laughs> i would have killed my mother on my way out uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and then if i did make it i would have gotten some horrible childhood disease that would have killed me mm-hmm. and then were you lucky enough to make it to adulthood no right it's horrible no it's really and, horrible and when you learn more about it and you learn about the afflictions that people had and especially if you were poor mm-hmm. it's no good right no I don't, no good i don't see how anyone living in the city could drink water like i just don't even understand and like they didn't right they were all alcoholics or whatever because it's small beer it's it's <laughs> <laughs> but you would have to start drinking it as a child you know once you just graduate from milk to beer i guess because 
Because I mean, otherwise, you're you're drinking from the well that has the body and the the, the gun and right, the knife, the skeletonized female body down the well that we talked about last week. That or people were it drinking. was, or it was just dug next to a privy and the yeah. priest and the, into it. <laughs> right. All right. So back to back to this dig. So you come you come into this job with close to a million artifacts. What is your job? What do you what are you supposed to do? Our job was to process and analyze, process, catalog, and analyze those materials. What, how do you even start? Is Pick there a, a process that already <laughs> existed, or did you have to kind of figure out? We what were the there process? essentially to create the process, mm. and it was difficult because the material had been in storage for so long. And, and one of the first things we did was do an inventory. Wow. Of all of the bags and all of the boxes, uh-huh. which is daunting and wasn't terribly fun. But, you know, at the same time, we couldn't even figure out where things were because we didn't have a list <laughs> that told us right. where they were. So we, we did that. And then we started working on the features. We focused on ceramics first just because they are so telling um, and have so much information in them and they can kind of guide you in the process. And you can tell too quickly if you're if you have what's called an intact deposit, so this is the trash from the people who lived here, or if you have a secondary deposit, which is somebody brought in a bunch of fill mm. and filled in what was left of the privy, and nobody had ever discarded anything in there. Right. Um, or the well, too. We did have a couple of wells on the block as well. Hmm. But yeah, we just started working our way through it. And wow. we had a big group of volunteers. I was going to um, say, like, how many people? Because it couldn't possibly just be, like, three there, people. There <laughs> were two of us. Um, and we also did a lot of public interface. When we initially started, we had a large lab where the Museum of the American Revolution is now. Uh-huh. Um, when that was still the Independence Living History Center. And we had a lot of space. And we were able to really spread out and get a lot done. And then the museum comes around and we lose our space and I really like all those folks over there. Um, so but, do we you took my space oh. <laughs> and we told you there were privies there um, and they found them and they found them. Um, right. But, um, but yeah, so we've moved around a little bit, but have continued to, yeah, just basically work through the material. And I think um, recently we ran the numbers, if you will, and we've mm-hmm. cataloged, with a skeleton crew of people, usually yeah. projects like this have, you know, 10, 15 people working on them full time. And oh my gosh, we're down literally to one, which is me with some <gasps> with volunteers and the occasional seasonal staff member. Is and that just because of budget cuts and things? It's a variety of things. Okay. And um, but money, you know, does play a big role in that. But we've we've cataloged close to five hundred thousand artifacts. Oh, so you're halfway. And, yeah, and we process <laughs> well and it's it's and you have to prepare the material to catalog it. Yeah. And a lot of our initial time was spent working through the stuff, mending it, you know, logging it, identifying it, getting it processed mm-hmm. so you can actually do something with it. Yeah. We've processed, I would say probably seventy five to eighty percent of the collection. Right. So it's but then it's, you have to go through. Yeah. And de- the next so depending, stage. depending on what actual stage of the process you're in, we we're we're really working through it. We're, yeah. we're, we're getting there. What happens to the stuff after it's been processed and analyzed and, you know, you you found a complete bowl. What happens to that bowl? You take it home. <laughs> you sell it on the black market. That's right. Yeah. Make tons of money on eBay. <laughs> Sadly, we take it apart and it goes into storage. 
it just goes into storage where like on site like it's a, we we do have on site storage the idea with all of this is that you do the dig you do the lab work you do the analysis and then you write a report detailing your findings the report is not anywhere even remotely close to being done. I'll mm-hmm. probably be dead by the sure. time it gets done. I mean, these are huge undertakings. Yeah. It's not something that you can just whip together. It, it takes so much time and energy and research to pull a report together. And I imagine people, the report is going to be huge, too, for something. Yeah, a comparable site was um, the Five Points in New York when they dug up there in the 90s, I believe. And that that's a five-volume report yeah (laughs) so when you have something like that staring you in the face yeah it makes the artifacts seem you know easy because then you have to like use your brain to write all of that right you basically are writing like like that yeah phd thesis exactly right exactly (laughs) and (laughs) and so yeah it's it's a really daunting thing but we also a lot of people ask well why don't you exhibit the material and we do exhibit some things, mm-hmm. but also within the context of Independence National Historical Park, for those that have visited, you know, you go to the hall, you go to the bell. We have a beautiful portrait gallery in the second bank, but we don't, our spaces aren't dedicated to the exhibition of all of the wonderful things that we do have in storage because we have all of these archaeological mm-hmm. things, but we also have a lot of decorative objects that aren't exhibited as well. Right. And, and And to be honest, too, what good does it do anybody just to exhibit a bunch of tumblers, you know, a bunch of plain <laughs> drinking glasses that look exactly like the ones the that you ones. use at home? <laughs> and I just happen to have, you know, 8,500 of them from all of these sites. Sure. That's right. what me as a kid would be like, boring. boring. Right, exactly. Right. But like now, now that I've got this insight into it, like every right. time we see anything that looks remotely like this stuff, we're like, oh. <gasps> that looks just like our stuff back home and we get so excited um we we talked on the podcast a couple weeks ago about going up to the met in new york and there's a gallery there which is not laid out like they're pretty galleries it's like just a warehouse of yes it's great it's It's my favorite i I love museums that just exhibit open storage yeah Yeah. and i I recently in january was up at the met and saw that for the first time and was just as pleased as punch absolutely it's just (laughs) there's just so you just hit with so much stuff Mm -hmm. But that's okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of haphazardly organized. It's sort of like, oh, everything with a picture of George Washington on it goes on this shelf. And <laughs> But I was so entranced by, rather than seeing one item outside of context, you sort of see the context of mm-hmm. like a ton of stuff yeah. all together on a shelf. And I thought that was really cool. It's a neat way of doing it. And, and I would love... You know, again, if money and time were of no consequence, <laughs> we would build a facility and you could see, we would just have open storage. Yeah. And you could see the archaeological materials or even just the boxes. I know it sounds silly, but I always get a, oh, wow, response from people who just see the sheer number of boxes of artifacts yes, that so, we have. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So I'm going to like switch tack a little bit. So we met you in... 2017 i think um it might have been a couple years ago yeah i don't know it's something like that i don't remember (laughs) it's all a blur dates you get past 30 and you're like i don't even know what day it is anymore (laughs) um well rob hunter came to our house and we talked about that i think in like episode four or five i don't even remember and he said to us like it was a totally natural thing oh well you know debbie miller 
at the National Park you Service. You know Debbie, right? Right. And we were like, no. Debbie who? Because No. Like, we don't know what we're win. doing. Like, Rob, you don't understand. We have no idea what we're doing. It was a complete miracle that we found you through the Chipstone website that mm. Matt contacted them and they passed our email on to the correct person instead of just thinking we were a couple kooks and throwing it away and we tried the seaport museum and pen museum and nobody would help us and we didn't even think actually oh go to the national park service like our experience of national parks we've been to a bunch of national parks and that's what we think of even though we know that independence mall is like a national park i don't think it even sure. occurred to well, us i don't think the nature of what we had really struck us at that point and again, it's still a teeny tiny fraction of your collection. But to see the excitement that Rob Hunter had for the stuff that we had, uh, that was like, oh, oh, okay, well, maybe maybe, maybe we do we'll talk to follow the, up on okay, this. Okay, great. And then he put us in touch with you. And then at some point, we organized a visit to the space where you're looking at things. And we met Jed and you, and we looked at cupboards with drawers that sort of drying racks almost uh, kind of set up full of sherds and glassware. And it was like the most amazingly, deliciously overwhelming experience. (laughs) And this is all around the corner from where I work too, which is super handy. Um, You're in one of those, I want to say they're replica 18th century buildings. So they actually are 18th century buildings. Those are the real ones. And we're not there anymore. I know you're not anymore. But yeah, the Walnut Street houses, which are on the north side of Walnut Street between 3rd and 4th. Okay. And they are 18th century buildings, but the interiors have been completely Gutted and filled. filled. Yeah, they're heavily modified. What's the Philadelphia way? Yeah, we wouldn't have it any other way. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember, okay, so like the main selling point for getting to meet you was uh, the fact that we had found Bonin and Morris. And I think we might have brought that in the first visit. But then it was kind of like we came into your... I don't know what you want to call it, a studio? Um, it was our lab. A lab, and saw that you had a bunch of Bonin and Morris things as well. I keep them out so I can say, oh, we have some of that too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you noticed so, that? Oh, yeah. We have so, two of those. So <laughs> they came out, of, my desk. <laughs> came out of one of these 137 shafts, is that right? Or did they... So the Bonin and the Morris that we have from the National Constitution Center site, we have two sauce boats. And those were recovered from the Privy Feature 142 uh-huh. that was behind um, Caleb Cresson's house. And Caleb Cresson was a well-connected Quaker who who actually, he and his brother inherited the northern half of the block and were the ones to develop it. So they, they, they did really well in real estate. Again, it's the Philadelphia way. Yeah. <laughs> but um, What's a sauce boat for people who don't know a what sauce a sauce boat is? It's, it's a gravy boat. Um, it's, a, it's a nice word for gravy boat and ours are really crudded up the glaze had clouded but we have had them tested and it, they were bond and morris and i had gone through the other collections from independence so we we have the giant national constitution center collection but there are also probably i want to say about a million ish other artifacts from other excavations at the park over the last 60 years wow and there were other examples of Bonin and Morris hmm. that had been recovered from Area F, <laughs> which is a super 
park servicey way of saying the Ritz parking garage. Oh wow, <laughs> that's over next to Welcome Park. <laughs> And there was a big excavation that was done there. It's actually one of the most interesting sites, huh. I think, hmm. um, that's been excavated in Philadelphia. But, um, but yeah, I've, I've managed to get all of the Bon and the Morris together. So we have it available awesome. when we need to. That feels like it could be an exhibit somewhere. They I've... have been exhibited. Oh. Um, I will say that. There was an exhibition at the Philadelphia Museum of Art in 2007, 2008, I believe, that was focused on Bonin and Morris, and some of our examples were included in nice. in that exhibit. I think that was probably the website that Matt found like as two seconds. As soon as Rob said Bonin and Morris, I Googled, and it was like Philadelphia Museum of Art. Yeah, I think they have an online exhibit. The first for it. time mm-hmm. this has ever been assembled since they were created. It was uh, pretty eye opening and. Um, yeah, that's where I, I wasn't sure if Rob was for real. <laughs> I was like, you're pulling my leg. So there's a huge privy digging culture and community up and down the East Coast. And we have learned in our time digging privies that there are different factions and different <laughs> kinds of privy digger. And it was interesting because I felt like you had a very moderated view on what privy digging presents to the archaeological community and the problems and the advantages of it right i guess yeah <laughs> um, and and i think you know depending on who you talk to mm-hmm. in the professional community we're all going to feel differently about it depending on who we are what our standpoint is and also i think too how how long we've been doing this and mm. you know and there's an evolution to thought <laughs> over sure. time when i moved here initially we're taught that the only good archaeology is the archaeology that's done professionally. And I still I still stand mm-hmm. by that sure. because there's a process that we follow. And that process is there to ensure that we're able to capture the information that we want to capture from these sites. Right. Yes, we enjoy finding stuff, but the finding stuff is just one part of a much larger process. Yeah. And, and I think that's what makes it different. I I can remember when we were still at the Living History Center in our first big lab, we had these guys who would come in and be like, hey, I've got this stuff. And we'd be like, oh. So usually like privy dig is just bringing a hole in? Just bringing in in unusual objects. The the one I remember um, specifically is this really unusual chamber pot. And I'm actually really good friends now with Chris Rao who brought it in and he's a local, he, he lives in Baltimore, but he's a local digger. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just over time. And I especially think through social media, once I got connected to a lot of these object specific groups, the ceramics folks, and I, I specialize in ceramics. So this, the ceramics groups, the stoneware groups, the ridiculous number of, I like pottery groups that are out there that all of us ended up being members of and sharing things and seeing that this was really happening and there was so much of it happening and getting to know the guys really through social media changed some of the way that I feel about it. Do I wish we could do professional archaeology on every site? Absolutely. Right. Is it possible? No, no yeah. way. It's not even remotely possible. And so I, I took the stance of as long as it's done with permission and as long as it's done ethically, mm-hmm. um, and there, I know that there are guys who, mm-hmm. who, who don't do that. Mm-hmm. Right. The guys that I've, I've gotten to know and, and you guys 
I'm appreciative of seeing the things that come from the sites that they've dug. And I know, for instance, when they tore the shirt corner down. Oh, yeah. At oh, yeah. Third and Market. So this was a building that burned no, down? that was oh, no, the that other was one. the suit that corner. Was the suit oh, corner suit corner. All my its bad. polyester. Uh, my bad. Shirt corner versus suit corner, but they were close to each other, right? Yeah, they they were catty corner to yeah. each other. Yeah. So this was on the northeast corner <laughs> where the CVS is now. Where the CVS is now. Got it. Uh-huh. When they tore that down, I can remember just feeling gutted, for lack of a better word, because we knew there would be no archaeology there, and I know the professional community too had gone to the city and were like, mm. guys, the heart of yeah. the historic corridor. Right. Boom. You know, it's right there. It's right there. And oh, no, no, no. They did and nothing. It, no, because there's there's no regulation for it to be done. Right. And I know from the guys who ended up getting permission to dig on the site that there were, I want to say about eight shafts <gasps> right mm. there. And, and, and one of them that was dug was very, very early. And that's wow. kind of really... Really important things in the 18th century early, but um, mm-hmm. so when we hit so the 17th what? century sites. That's yeah. when <laughs> that's when I'm going to get really excited. Yeah. Right, <laughs> but, picketing, uh, chaining yourself to I'll chain to- myself <laughs> to to the site. Right, but um, but yeah, I it, it's it's important to me to see the material yeah. that's been recovered. And like in the case of you guys, where you found a piece of Bonnet and Morris, which is incredibly rare, but then you have the the quilted piece that's mm-hmm. a waster, mm-hmm. which this is how weird I am that I know what people have. Yeah, I'm no. like, oh, you have that waster that has a quilted decoration. <laughs> yeah, I'm a weirdo. But, um, but it's important that we know about that for people like myself who study material culture, who are interested in the technological advances mm. of certain industries in America. Yeah, I want to I want to see this stuff. Right. I still I'm still so fascinated by the mystery of how that quilted got there. I'm <laughs> There's a lot of weird things that get into privies. Um, and, and it is interesting in, in thinking about all of the different sites that I've seen, even though the NCC site is one site, it's a very diverse site that spans a long history of time. So it, it starts you know, our earliest stuff is probably from about the 1750s, 1760s, when there were just a couple of houses here, there. And then it goes all the way to about 1900. So mm-hmm. so there's a long span of time there for a lot to change. And, and so we're not just looking at the revolution. Mm-hmm. We're not looking at mm-hmm. early America. We're, you know, we're looking at this you know, huge the develop- development of America over yeah. 100 years. Right, span. right. And we have... It's an embarrassment of riches, if you will, to have that material. And, and so, yeah, it's seeing what's out there that I can compare to. And, and we do have, my point was going to be that in every single privy, there's kiln junk. Right. There's Just kiln wasters. <laughs> there's waste material. And I think that's Phil. Yeah. Phil, mo- people do weird things with dirt. Yeah. And they move it around. Sure. Like like crows picking up stones and they dropping just, them in another place. Yeah, it's like they just move dirt around. A weird impulse, agents of entropy spreading stuff around. And, <laughs> yeah. And I just, it's weird. What's the weirdest thing you've ever seen come out of the ground? Um, my favorite artifact ever, and it's it's a really unassuming little thing, was actually recovered. I didn't dig it. It was dug well before I was even born. But it's from the fortified compound site 
at this site called Flower Dew 100, which is on the James River. Okay. In, um, What's in, a, for, a fortified compound like a military? It's a fort. A so fort. the fort okay. was built in 1619 by Sir George Ardley, who wow. was then governor of the colony. And it was one of the original um, settlements of Virginia. It's, you know, once they started to expand outside of Jamestown. The fort was established in 1699, and, and so it's a military garrison. And the object is a ball of wax. What? So it's just a little ball okay. of, of, of beeswax. And on one side, there's a line through it. So a line that's cutting through it. And when you flip it around, there are teeth marks <gasps> in it. And so what it was was a ball of wax that was used to wax thread. And so whoever last used it had put it in their mouth and held it while they pulled the <laughs> oh my thread gosh. through it in, uh, in like 1620. Sure. So you that's, have someone's dental impressions. Yeah. So that's really cool. I, I, that's I, so cool. I really like objects that show the human side. And I think yeah. that's why I like pottery so much is because you'll see fingerprints yes. or you're, you'll see fingernail impressions uh-huh. or I, we have one pot, a piece of stoneware from the Constitution Center site that literally they picked it up with both hands and it was still tacky. So you have the handprints on both sides of that. That's so great. And I, I really enjoy seeing the humanity of these things because, you know, let's face it, you look at something and you're like, oh, that's a glass. Oh, yeah. that's a this, that's a that. But they represent people that lived, mm-hmm. you know, it's real history in real time. And occasionally you're very fortunate enough to capture a moment in time. Right. Like somebody waxing their thread uh-huh. in hot Virginia <laughs> where, the, you're t- where you're just trying to survive, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, in, in the 17th century. No, I totally and, get it. This is like, that's, that's the stuff that I love. It's the reason why. You know, yes, the Bonnet and Morris is very beautiful, and I understand the importance of it, but I love redware, yeah. where you can see mm-hmm. the fingerprints on mm-hmm. the outside, and you can see the mistakes, and you can see, you know, mm-hmm. that side of the humanity. And it makes me think of, um, I cried when I saw the Cave of Forgotten Dreams, that Werner Herzog documentary about the 30 plus thousand year old cave paintings Mm. where there are a bunch of handprints on the Mm -hmm. wall. And then there are these paintings of um, oryx and like all of this stuff. And it's like a window into Mm -hmm. humans Mm -hmm. of 30,000 years ago. And yeah, it's like the handprint. It's nothing. It's just a handprint. It's like Mm -hmm. the most basic Mm -hmm. art you can make. But the thought of being able to, I mean, obviously I'm just watching it on on a movie screen, but the thought that like you as a human in the 21st century could put your hand there. Absolutely. And and those are powerful things. And and I think if you're somebody who's interested in the past and you feel a connection with it on a very primal level, if you will, it's... It is powerful, and I. That's why I like redware. Yes, I agree with you, Bonham Morris. It's lovely. Blah blah blah. <laughs> I'm not probably supposed to say that, Rob. If you're listening, <laughs> I love it so much. Right, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, but I, I really, really like redware, and I really like Philadelphia redware because it's a handcraft. It's yeah, a, it's a local industry, and you can see 
just the development of Philadelphia through it. And I, I find that to be really, really heartening. And yeah, and yeah to touch the hand of, of somebody. It's, right. To see how they hold it and to see the evidence of them holding it almost like a forensic thing. But And somebody who will never know, who's not mm-hmm. been remembered by history. And I yes. think that's the other thing about archaeology that, that I think is so important is that you know, most of the history that we encounter, if we visit, let's say Independence Hall, we, you know, we're looking at a group of people, a very small group of very wealthy, mm-hmm. very white right. men. They have their portraits up in and, a portrait gallery, so you can see their faces. And which I do is love their rare. portraits, I admit. Me I, too. I, I really enjoy looking at their faces. I wish everyone had portraits. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but but the history that, that we're taught and that we're exposed to on... You know, even even in our homes mm-hmm. on television focuses on people who we never would most of us, I should say, would never have encountered right. at any point in our lives. And archaeology, in my mind, represents the everyman, the people who lived and worked and who made all of these ideas that we cherish so dear now possible, but all behind the scenes, right. just as the rest of us are doing now. Right. And and I think that, again, is really powerful. And, mm-hmm. and we might not know their names and we might not know their faces, but but if we can tell some of their story, right. regardless of who they were, yeah, I, I think that's important. Yeah. Here's the mark they left on the world. And mm-hmm. that's why it's been so amazing to dig into the history of our building and find stories from people who aren't, you know, amazing founding fathers that everyone and their dog has heard of and and discover them as people. I mean, I feel like we're very privileged with the Quaker records that we found of Daniel Williams, For which sure. tell his life story and have so much information about him. I mean, he was pretty wealthy as well, clearly. But then in our last episode, we're talking about when our neighborhood became very poor and the people who just lived and died and the mark they left on the world is a newspaper article about them being murdered or whatever. You know? <laughs> yeah. The police record. Right, police yeah. records. And, you know, for a lot of them, you'll never, that's it. That's all the evidence that we have left is he was robbed because he made a dumb decision and came to the roughest area of Philadelphia with a silver watch. And, <laughs> and, and then someone decided to take advantage of him and robbed him. But it's like, hey, this was a person who lived, who walked the street that I'm, I'm walking on mm-hmm. and experienced the city in a completely different way, but in the same space that we're in. It's completely changed how I've looked at my surroundings like oh yeah yeah it's uh, completely yeah and then the thought that you know some of the stuff we're finding in our neighborhood might have belonged to these people you know the fill layer that's in the top of our privy all of these artifacts that we're finding that are from the 19th century as well that I'm like the workers drank this soda And then dumped the trash and then poured the slab on top of it. Drank so. some Bromo seltzer after their horrible meal and right. the bottles in too. Right. Yeah. And that, and just because it's not the 18th century doesn't make it any less important. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, we get caught up in Philadelphia in our revolutionary <laughs> heritage, our colonial right. heritage, but there were, I mean, the 19th century is fascinating, Yeah, especially in the years leading up to the civil war with the riots and all kinds of, you know, nativist activities and things that people don't even learn about things that are just really, really fascinating, even into the 20th century. Sure. And, and, and it's unfortunate that we kind of gloss over a lot of the chunk in between yeah. you know, from the 18th century to now. Although 
you know, we have a preservation crisis in the city and it, and it's, <laughs> <laughs> right. And it doesn't matter how old it is or yeah. how new it is, you know, anything's yeah. up yeah. for grabs. So, but, I, yeah. I wanted to talk about that a little bit. So like one of the things that surprised us, I think when we were digging the privy was that our architect, when we told him about the privy was really worried that the privy was going to throw a wrench in our building process and our construction process and was freaking out like, oh, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody about this because you might get shut down. And then we started doing research and discovering like, actually, there is nothing that is going to force us to shut down construction. There, Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense seeing all the construction that has gone on in Philadelphia in the decade or so that we've been here. I kind of thought that and I wasn't like, oh boy, it was like, huh. Right. Like, uh, and there's still like this impression, you know, uh, when that Philadelphia Magazine article went out, one of the comments that I saw from someone on Facebook was <laughs> like, oh, the government's just going to take all of that. And I was like, no, did you read the article? Because, it, <laughs> you know, Debbie was in the article very clearly saying that we're not going to take your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's not how this works. I don't know where you got this impression because that you know that's not something that happens. I suppose if it's Native American artifacts, there are some some regulations in place. Some regulation and right. human remains. And human although re- that's that's a toss up too, <laughs> depending right. on the, yeah, we the time of day. Good into it, but I mean, recent events have shown that yeah. like. Uh. It's it's, it's it's not as hard and fast as one may have you believe. And, right. and even even if there are rules, like if you're in a historic district, it comes down to there's got to be somebody there to enforce it. Mm-hmm. Right. And as far as this city goes, most of the time they're going to throw up their hands and right. find a reason or a loophole to say, oh, well, you know, we don't have any jurisdiction there. What should cities be doing to help with the preservation of these things? Like what kinds of regulations do you think should be put in place? Well, there are different different cities that have good and robust regulation. The city of Alexandria, Boston actually recently hired a city archaeologist, which hmm. there hasn't been a city what? archaeologist. I know what? That's crazy. <laughs> we, wow. Crazy okay. talk. So there used resources. to be one in Philly? There was one in Philadelphia many, many moons ago. I, I think... Right after they bulldozed for 95. <laughs> <laughs> they just put her in there with it. Um, um, in the 80s was when there was last a city archaeologist huh. for Philadelphia. And I mean, again... Would it be great to save everything? Would it be great to do archaeology across the board? Yeah, it would be super. But it's also not reasonable or sustainable right. to, you know, to to want to do something like that. And I think I think we do need some regulation, you know, with this recent task force that the mayor put together to address the preservation issues in Philadelphia. One of the things that came out of the task force was that they're going to essentially do an inventory of, you know, historic or important, whatever you want to define those as, architectural resources mm-hmm. across the city. And they're going to create a list. Well, but they're not doing this for archaeology. Hmm. Right. Well, we, and it was, well, we don't really know, you know, that's too complicated. Or, oh, wait, they just don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Please don't raise my taxes for saying that. <laughs> but, <laughs> too late. But yeah, too late. (laughs) But nobody wants to address, you know, the archaeological issue. And and why can't we identify what are the most important sites? Right. 
or what areas what areas have potentially higher you know rate of resources Mm -hmm. as as archaeology has proved time and time again if you dig it it will be there right Mm -hmm. very rarely is something not there and and we have an incredible wealth of knowledge within the professional community who have dug all over the city for whatever you know project or reason that we can kind of suss out what you might actually recover in a site. Sure. And um, and I think we could certainly be doing more to even just address that. Well, right. you know, what areas have the highest potential yeah. for I, important sites or, yeah. or whatever? Or even just, yeah, the idea that, I mean, it's astonishing to me. I think that so many people we've talked to uh, around this podcast have been like, oh, I never looked into the history of my building. Like, how can you live somewhere and not think about that? <laughs> well, I will do the professional disclaimer here of don't just go dig your privy in yep. your backyard. Yeah. You guys were lucky. Yeah. For a variety of reasons. Number one, that you weren't killed. <laughs> but it's, it is a dangerous thing to just jump into. Sure. Yes. What should people do if they suspect they have a privy? <laughs> Find a patron. Uh, find a patron. Yes. Um, you know that that's a good question, and honestly, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer for that is because there's the answer that I have, mm. which is leave it alone, and there's the answer that you know other people would have, which right. is you know dig in, and and I do think if you're on private property, you know, and it's your property, and mm-hmm. you're interested in doing that, then there's nothing that can stop you from doing it. But I do think that as interesting of a I don't want to call it a pastime, but as interesting as it is, again, there's a process we follow and there's also a plan. So like you guys have right. all this stuff now and you're mm-hmm. like, what the hell are we going to do with all this <laughs> stuff? Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a nice building where all my stuff goes and every night I turn the light off and say good night and you know, and it's still there the next morning. We have morning. a ton of Tupperware shelves. But, but <laughs> again, you know, I don't have... I do have artifacts in my basement, but we're not yeah. going to discuss that. <laughs> and, <laughs> but you can end up with a tremendous amount right. of stuff. Right. And then what if you find out you have really important things or what if you find, you know, God forbid human remains in it or, and mm-hmm. it does happen. Mm-hmm. And there are issues that can arise from that. And, but number one, it can be really dangerous. Sure. Like, don't dig out a privy that's underneath a party wall. Oh, for sure. Yeah. People do it. Uh-huh. And you could kill yourself. Right. Um, and they're also really, really deep. And there can be oxygen issues <laughs> when you get to the bottom yeah. of them. And, yeah. And the way that we even excavate them is we actually take them apart. So we dig around them and expose them. And then we bisect them. So mm-hmm. we cut them in half so we can read them. Mm-hmm. So we have an east half and a west half or a north half and a south half. And then, we'll, you know, so we'll bisect it, look at that, then dig around some more and slowly take it apart from the outside. So at no point are we going straight down, down the middle in into it. the death pit. And then if we do end up going down in them, which it, it ultimately happens because there's, you know, as you take them apart, you're digging around them and we're just shoring up around them. So there's not just a pretty chef <laughs> 22 feet up out of the ground. Um, but everybody has on safety gear. Mm-hmm. I'm also, I get creeped out by the, the wet layer. Mm-hmm. Right. So you would make a really crappy night. So woman back oh, in the day. Oh, I never would have done. Yeah, no. 
I can't. I I run when my kid vomits. I, so I I don't do well with with human uh, bodily uh, fluids. Fluids, sure. yes, juices. What <laughs> was coming to my mind? But that's not the best. Juicy wet human stuff. Is, right. It's not. It's not my. Yeah. It's not my cup of tea. I mean, back in the day, people would have gone in through the top and cleaned oh, that yeah. stuff out. And right? we we have we have a privy from the Constitution Center site that actually blew out. Um, what does that mean? It means that I don't really know how it happened, but there's a repair. Oh. In it, so it partially collapsed. Whoa! And they went in and they repaired it. That's also a fun job, privy repairman. Yeah. I mean, it's they're unmortared brick. Yeah, yeah. And that's a danger zone, right? Um, Could just collapse. So, yeah, I mean, L and I fights this all the time around here. And, sure. Right. But I think you know, if you if you're really really interested in it, there are plenty of ways to learn about how to do it and how as to do safely it as possible. appropriately, right? And how to do it safely. And and again, if, if you're doing it in your backyard, you have every right to do it. Right. No one in- can actually stop you or force you to turn over your artifacts. <laughs> but take your time. It's but, like yeah. fixing a car, right? Yeah. Don't rush it. I kind of, and it's funny, I say this coming from a place of privilege where we accidentally bisected two privies. If you've our construction one- guys, you know, our, our construction guys who dig holes for a living dug a hole that bisected two of our privies by accident. So that's great. That's they did. They did all the hard work. And yeah, these holes already existed by the time we came into those privies. Mm -hmm. But well, and there's things like that, of course, that you just happen. That's upon them. I mean, basically what I feel like your advice of like, just leave it. That makes a whole lot of sense. I would um, be unable to do that. <laughs> well, I mean, like, don't go, don't go. I mean, but you're up. also kind of superhuman at the same time. You're like the energizer rabbit of, of all kinds of things. I it's just like, want to oh, know. I'm digging, but then I'm the later that day. I'm in L.A. And, you know, composing music. I was like, who are learn. you? I'm I taking a nap. <laughs> It's a lot to keep up with. <laughs> I'm just very tired, but <laughs> most of the time. But I would just feel like, you know. I, I don't I don't think we're gonna set off a rash of amateur archaeology. No, but we are gonna and, we are gonna interview um, Tom Salvatore and and Michael Frechette yes. at some point in the next couple of weeks and get that perspective. perspective. I think like check out what's out there. Um, you know, yeah, maybe you've got a privy in your backyard. Wonderful. Maybe mm-hmm. you don't. Maybe it's full. Maybe it's not. Go to things like I uh, only recently went to that um, uh, in the Benjamin Franklin Court. They've got that hollowed out building. Oh, three eighteen on it. Yes, I'm, uh, sorry, three eighteen uh, market. market. Um, which that, that's my favorite thing in Independence National Park. It's so so cool. So cool. I've so cool. literally been working. I've been. I can see it from the back of my office. So for like. Oh, that's right. Yeah, from 12 years, I've been like overlooking this thing. And I finally look in and I'm like, it's wonderful. It's so good. And you can do the research mm-hmm. and you can uncover the history without digging. And mm-hmm. the other thing about digging, too, is you might really be into the fact that, you know, so-and-so lived at your house in 1758. And that was super awesome. And it's a cool story. And then you dig and everything is from 1930. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sure. And then you're like, what the hell? Right. <laughs> I did all of this for that. And and so archaeology doesn't also 
give you the answers that you right. hope to find. Mm-hmm. It's only in rare moments when the stars align and you actually are asking real questions. Right. Like, for instance, I'm the kind of pro bono archaeologist for Stenton, which mm-hmm. is a historic house museum in Germantown. And uh, the house was built in 1730 by James Logan, who was a man of many, many things. But he started here essentially as the proprietary agent for the pens when he came over in 1699. Uh But at Stinton, we had this question about what did the landscape look like when James Logan built the house? And we there had always been these rumors about the walls. There was a forecourt and there were these formal gardens in front of the house. So several years ago, we did an excavation there to where we wanted to see if we could find evidence of these walls and we hit them. Oh, and yeah, no, that's that's That's, big that's a big deal because we found them we found the corners (laughs) and we were like holy cats you can like like, map them all out they were six inches below the ground and we even we didn't have to even you know open up the entire front yard you kind of can calculate these things out we were able to hit one of the corners in the front and then we you know probed around and we opened up on the other side and are these stone walls or brick or they the found we well we found the foundations which are stone and they would have had brick walls built up off of them and you know so four units and we were able to map out what that all would have looked like and that was bananas that was like (laughs) thank you gods of archaeology with our shoestring budget and me begging my friends to come dig on the weekend we found troy and, and that's awesome. Answered the question. That's really rare. Yeah. 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 That don't happen all the time. <laughs> right. I had one observation that I wondered if you see the same observation. I, from my experience outside looking in, there seem to be a lot of women in archaeology. Yes. There actually are. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I was thinking about that. I, well, I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of my colleagues and and the diversity of people who I've gotten to know, and again, primarily through social media, because the archaeology tends to be pretty darn regional. The people Mm. in the South do the archaeology to the South. We're in the Mid-Atlantic, which makes us kind of weird, because like, even though Philadelphia is this huge, major city, we don't even show up on the national weather maps when they yeah. do the weather. It's right? Like, it's, oh, no, we count. We get overlooked in <laughs> we so get many overlooked places. And I don't understand why. <laughs> and then there's the Northeast. And there are a tremendous amount of women in archaeology. And thinking about our own group at AECOM, there's a tremendous number of women who are involved. And I, I don't know what the phenomena is around that. Um, hmm. But it, there's also a number of women-owned companies, uh, cultural resource management companies out there right now. The one that really comes to mind is Chrysalis, who does archaeology in New York City, and it's a woman-owned company. And, and I think that's wonderful. And Oh, it's fantastic. I'm so used to it when you go into these like hard sciences. It's like mm-hmm. all dudes. Mm-hmm. And frankly, oftentimes a, a lot of awful dudes. <laughs> I can I say that. I could tell you some stories um, about men I've been in cornfields with. Um, oh, right. And, and there are a lot of, I, I hate to use the expression old timers, but a lot of the guys that I even trained under, especially there's one coming to mind, and I won't use his name because he would murder me and I'm, a, I'm still afraid of him. But he, um, best field archaeologist I ever knew, just wonderful, but was very old school and had a very old school approach to things. And 
And I think too, we're, I, I think archaeologists in general, we're a resourceful group and we tend to not be easily astonished or easily offended mm-hmm. um, just by the nature of what we do, but also the situations that, you know, you're put in where you're working in these awful, awful environments. <laughs> yeah. And, you're not clean and you know you have to you're in very close quarters with people for you're all being human beings you're all being human beings and you kind of get used to that but yeah i think the number of women in the field is inspiring yeah it's fantastic i wonder if it's also just because like anthropology feels to me like a field that a lot of women get Mm -hmm. into and there have been some you know really high profile female anthropologists out there and so archaeology being connected to that Mm -hmm. in college level might sort of and, and sociology as well is like a, there's so many women involved in sociology. I took like one sociology course and I remember reading a lot of texts by women. Whereas like <laughs> like traditional, I wouldn't even use the word traditional, but like old school archaeology, the mm-hmm. idea of you know like the Indiana Jones style archaeology right. or the guys in Egypt robbing tombs and bringing all of the artifacts to the pen the museum. Pen museum. <laughs> In the British Museum and all of that, you know, um, that seems like that was this very sort of male-driven conquest thing as opposed to studying what people were like Mm -hmm. and learning. And and, the science-based approach to it. Of course, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. And and like everything, it evolves over time. And if you look at, there's some wonderful photos, especially since I cut my teeth in Virginia, a lot of my early exposure was to Virginia archaeology in the 60s and 70s and just the pictures that you see, and, <laughs> you know, and and the stories that you hear. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm sure things have changed a lot. Things have changed a lot. The story of archaeology, archaeology tagline, things have changed a lot. <laughs> just like everything. <laughs> Debbie, thank you so, so, so much for this whole conversation and for being on our show and for all of the help you have provided and for everything that you do in archaeology in Philadelphia and beyond. Um, It is so freaking awesome to know you. Oh, uh, you make me blush. No, it really is. I'm always like showing off the fact that I know you to people. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't go too far with that. (laughs) Thank you. Coming up next week on The Bog House, we actually don't know 100% for sure what we're doing next week. We have some more conversations that uh, we think will be really interesting with some folks that we've talked about on earlier episodes. But outside of that, we also have some great stories about the crazy nonsense we had to go through building this apartment that we are currently recording in. Yeah. As I think we mentioned earlier on, we've done a lot of home renovation, but there's a world of difference between building your own bathroom and hiring a crane (laughs) to put massive steel beams into a building. (laughs) Yeah. I'm Matt Dunphy. And I'm Melissa Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review if you like what you hear.
What do you like about pottery? Nothing. 